Nothing on the Bonnell Foundation's Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast should be considered medical advice. Medical advice can only come from your CF physician. Cystic fibrosis can be a devastating diagnosis, but living with the disease can bring positivity and a new appreciation for each day. From the Bonnell Foundation in Detroit, Michigan, it's the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast, sponsored by Vertex Pharmaceutical and Viatris. Here's your host, Laura Bonnell. We're honoring people who have had an impact in the CF community. Dina Aquazino is one of these people. She retired in December of 2021 after a 44-year career as the CF Pediatric Program Coordinator at the Nebraska Regional CF Center in Omaha. As a CF Program Coordinator, Dee oversaw the programs, education, and processes of the care at that center. Dee was also a CF Research Coordinator, CF Patient Registry Coordinator, and a National Facilitator for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation Program Coordinator Mentoring Program. She was also recently awarded by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. She was recognized as a non-physician member of a CF care team who demonstrates a passion for excellence and commitment to care of individuals with cystic fibrosis. And because of her lengthy career, Dee has seen incredible advancements in the understanding and treatment of CF, and that's why we're talking to her. We're interested in what she has seen since she started in 1977 until today. It's so interesting to hear what she has to say. Thank you, Dee, for joining us. We're so excited to have you and to be able to talk to you. And I'm so thankful that Kelly Jo Simon suggested that we talk to you because this is fabulous for May for CF Awareness Month. So it's great to be able to spotlight your whole career and everything that you've done in the cystic fibrosis community. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate it. And yeah, I thank Kelly Joe as well. I was so excited to be invited and I love talking about CF. So I'm glad to be here. You've had quite a career. I am so grateful and I'm sure the families that you worked with are so grateful for all your knowledge. Tell me when you got into the field, kind of what your expectations were when you first started? Well, that's a that's a great question. Um, when I was hired, I was hired by an absolutely spectacular physician named Gordon Gibbs back in 1978. And what I thought I was hired for was to actually develop educational materials for cystic fibrosis and just to kind of put some programs and protocols together. In fact, uh, Dr. Gibbs just had a different idea of what he needed me for. And uh, I ended up just being like his right-hand person uh, for the first three years until he retired. And he provided me an absolutely spectacular basis of knowledge of CF. He taught me how to do, this may not sound very exciting, but he taught me how to do stool samples and measure fat content in stool samples. He taught me how to use just sputum from CF patients, grow that on media plates and identify specific bacteria. I learned how to do sweat tests from him, all sorts of other laboratory tests, including spirometry. And I just got this knowledge base that I think is um, unique and um, uh, treasured forever. And probably most importantly, I learned from him uh, how to love uh, the field of CF and the CF community and realized how much our parents and patients 
did on a daily basis, the treatment burden that they went through, and yet they lived their lives and uh, had full lives. Now, that was in 1978. The average life expectancy at that point was oh, probably late teens, early 20s. So um, from that point to um, now, and I should mention that I just retired exactly three months ago today, things have changed dramatically. And so I feel blessed every single day I was working with the CF community to see the changes and improvements in care during my career. And I have to say, you must have started working when you were 10 because you don't look like you could have been working for 44 years. That's the screen thing. It's a filter. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Thank you. And you started working in this field prior to the Genome Project, prior to finding out and realizing how important all of our kids' mutations were yes. and what this would mean. I mean, it is literally night and day between that. So what was it like? You had hope, and parents, of course, had hope, and they were just praying for something, you know, when that genome project and when the gene was discovered, uh, you know, that caused cystic fibrosis in 1989, but you were way before that. So what was life like for parents? What did you see in parents as far as the fear for their children's life? Well, um, certainly there was that. And our focus, because it couldn't be on genetics and modulators, was really on just keeping them free from infections, which included clearing mucus uh, from their lungs. And even enzymes were different when I started because back in 1978, there were no enteric-coated enzymes. So they were just powdered enzymes where patients took probably, I would say, an average of 25 to 30 powdered capsules for each meal And even that didn't help them gain weight very well. And so it was probably in the early 80s, so soon after I started, that enteric-coated enzymes started uh, or developed, and that was a game changer, actually. Um, Even before the modulators, it's amazing. It's impossible to underestimate how important enteric-coated enzymes were. They went from taking 25 to 30 capsules per meal to four or five at the most uh, enteric coated capsules. And they didn't have the tummy problems that they used to. They gained weight. And so we focused a lot on that. We also knew prior to when I started, and and certainly not meaning to indicate it was because I was in the field, but uh, there wasn't a focus on high calorie, high fat diets. In fact, the focus was just the opposite because the enzymes that they had did not digest Uh, fat very well. And so our Canadian friends helped us realize that high fat diets were really important. And so that all happened uh, in the early 80s and was also a game changer, along with lots more antibiotics were developed. So our focus was really on mucus, lessening infection, gaining weight. It's so interesting. And the enzyme game changer, I completely understand When my oldest was born in 1994, I remember being so thankful for that. Oh, yeah. And I think those patients that kind of were there for the transition between the old enzymes to the new enteric-coated enzymes, 
their life just improved overnight, really. Because once you change to an enteric-coated enzyme, it doesn't take weeks to uh, correct some of that malabsorption. It happens almost immediately. As you might know, having two daughters with CF, if you miss enzymes, that impact is almost immediate. Same thing with when you start a more effective uh, enzyme, that impact was immediate as well. It was fun at that point to just see that and witness that. And I think that uh, the modulators, which are absolutely spectacular, but I think people forget if they haven't been in the field for very long, what a big deal that change to enteric-coated enzymes was. And this is why I'm so excited to interview you and talk about this because it's so important to remember how far we've come oh, true. with anything, but certainly with all of the history of cystic fibrosis. And the enzymes are such a huge part. And my girls have such a hard time digesting food. It's so critical in addition to all the breathing treatments and all of that, they really couldn't function without enzymes. Right, exactly. So those powdered enzymes... Mm-hmm. It just took a very long time for them to digest those, correct? Well, actually, what would happen is because they didn't have a coating around uh, the medications, they opened up early. And so they didn't work as well because they didn't. They needed to wait until they got down into the lower intestines where they really did their job. And that's the beauty of enteric coded that they would get through the system, your body, and then by the time they got to where they needed to get, then they opened up. That's why they needed to, they took so many of these powdered ones, because they were hoping that some of those would eventually get to where they needed to go to digest their food. And just to now carry them around with you, even put them in schools, like you have these beautifully, you know, encapsuled enzymes now right. that makes life so much easier for kids and adults. Well, and you might imagine when the option was only powdered, they were in the little gelatin capsules similar to the enteric coated, but it was just loose powder. And so for those babies that were diagnosed, um, you opened up probably at that time for babies, 15 to 20 of these capsules every time they ate um, and it was powder and we would have them add that to applesauce, similar to babies now with enteric coated, but it was a Mm -hmm. huge amount of medication for them to take with each time they ate. So, yeah, so it is wonderful. And then you were talking about the low fat diet, which I recently learned about. I didn't realize that at one point it was, you know, the low fat diet, like in the 1938, when Dr. Anderson first started diagnosing it and and everybody was getting involved. They thought that all these kids should be on low-fat diets. Yeah. And they weren't doing well on those low-fat diets. No. And can you imagine being a patient with CF? I remember this one specific situation where a teenage girl was in the hospital getting treated for a, a lung infection. But it was the same time that we realized that we could be more liberal with their diet. And keeping in mind, she also had just started enteric-coated enzymes. And so she was in the hospital, and I was in the room with her, and she was filling out her, her meal plan. And she ordered six pieces of bacon. And it was like the big, I said, 
go for it. You know, you can do this. She goes, really, I could have if I want that much bacon. I said, yep, you could have that much bacon. So I mean, that's a that actually thinking about it now um, is a quality of life issue, too. I mean, thinking about how it lessened their restrictions in their diet. Absolutely. So you actually saw, I would assume, them going from very thin to a normal body weight, Mm -hmm. like growth spurts and all sorts of things. Tell us about what you saw. Yeah, it was a pretty satisfying and gratifying thing to be able to witness. And you can imagine as a parent how gratifying that would be as well. Because everything gets so focused on food with CF. Yeah. And that can be a very challenging thing. It happens with boys too, but with girls also eating disorders on top of your chronic illness. So I think that really helped mentally probably too, not so much focus on food. That's right. I mean, it's still, uh, I would be remiss in minimizing the issues that we have with nutrition with our patients even today, but um, there's just a whole lot more we can do to customize diets for both girls and boys now. And we didn't have those options back in the 70s and 80s. So, And so how did that change when you talk to patients? Like that bacon example is a wonderful example, but what other kinds of things were your patients telling you as they got these new improved enzymes? Well, that they had normal stools, that they had less gas, less bloating. You know, they really felt a little bit more in control of their stomach issues, which, you know, being out in school or wherever they might be, um, not having really effective enzymes was pretty stressful for them. So this allowed them a little bit more freedom Um, knowing that they had fairly normal stools. And uh, then they also could go out in public and eat what everybody else was eating as well. So I think they just felt more normal. And uh, of course, uh, with the added benefit, as you mentioned, of gaining weight and, you know, having some control over that. So it was pretty cool to watch. And I think the other thing that's important is, You know, sometimes they don't care if their friends see them take enzymes, but with those encoded enzymes, you can really pop them in your mouth fast. Like there is a way that no one could see it, you know, if you didn't want anyone to see you taking your enzymes before you eat. Very true. What else did you see that's kind of night and day before um, the gene was discovered that causes CF? Actually, I would say drugs like Pulmazyme and all the uh, inhaled antibiotics that came on the market in the 90s made a big difference. They actually allowed our patients to not be hospitalized as frequently. And so a typical hospitalization is 10 to 14 days generally. And so if we could avoid even one hospitalization a year, it made a big difference. And so having things like inhaled antibiotics, and now you look at a product like Toby Podhaler, where you don't even have to put it in a nebulizer, you can carry that in your pocket or your purse. All of those provided less uh, interference in their regular lives and that they weren't having to be hospitalized. So having the antibiotics that we had available to us, I think people take that for granted these days too. You know, the choices that we had back in the day were limited. 
and a lot of them were just IVs. So if we felt like a patient had a typical CF lung infection or pulmonary exacerbation, the choice was hospitalization. And now we have just an unlimited amount of antibiotics that are available to us. And now with the world of modulators, we aren't even needing antibiotics as much as we did before. So all of that has really been helpful. But uh, yeah, I think that the change in antibiotics, I briefly mentioned Palmazine, another game changer in the world of CF, because it, um, for those people that don't know what Palmazine is, it's an inhaled medication that thins the mucus. And so in CF, that's a real hallmark and a real problem is that mucus is thick and sticky. So this drug then liquefies the secretion so they're able to cough it out more easily, keeping your lungs cleaner. So that was a really, a, a, it was a whole classification of a medication that never was before. And I remember at that time, I was also a research coordinator at our center. And so we were part of the clinical trial for Palmazine. And patients, you know, you got either the drug, which you didn't know if you were getting the drug, or a placebo. So mm-hmm. it was called a double-blinded study. So you you didn't know what you got, except that those patients that got Palmazine knew they were getting Palmazine because it made such a difference immediately in just allowing that thick mucus to be expelled. So that was a pretty big deal back in the, I think it was 1993 when Palmazine was approved. And did you realize at the time all this history and change that you were seeing? I know you're like so busy in personal and professional life, but did you realize all the changes as it was happening? Um, that's a very good question. I think I did. I mean, I, I certainly realized that patients were living longer. I mean, that was kind of one thing, although that happens over time. But I, I did feel that patients were able to look in the future and setting goals that they hadn't when I first started. You know, it was just uh, difficult to talk about things like college and maybe having babies and things like that were that didn't seem to be the case anymore. So on some level, I think I did understand that things were getting better. Keeping in mind also that it wasn't until 1989, as you mentioned earlier, that the gene was discovered. So there was a a lot at that point. I remember sitting in the, at the CF conference in 1989 when that was announced. And at that time, people, and in fact, the speaker at the time said that he had hoped that there would be gene therapy within 10 years. So that was 1999. And you can imagine we were all very excited about that. That did not happen, but at least in the meantime, there were therapies that were being developed that while it wasn't gene therapy or a cure, it was improving and and lengthening the life of our CF patients. And as I said, having my first child born in 1994 and second one in 1997, I didn't have some of those struggles that the earlier parents had. When my kids were born, I was, of course, and still am worried about their life expectancy, but I always saw a future for them. I always thought, well, they're going to college, they're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And those parents, before the life expectancy was extended past teens and 20s, I can't imagine what those parents were going through. And of course, everything isn't perfect now. There's still 
people dying young with cystic fibrosis were not by any means, you know, don't have a cure. But how was it working with those parents who were so desperate to know, like, I need to know my child's going to go to college or is going to live a long life? You know, I think that uh, Dr. Gibbs, and then I should mention also Dr. Colombo, it was our center director for 38 years with me, and he took over after Dr. Gibbs retired in 1981. He and I, at that point, I think we just, you just moved forward like they were going to go to college and they were going to get married or have babies because some of those patients did. I mean, in spite of or despite that they didn't have things like modulators or even pulmozyme at the time, some of them did better. And we didn't know who had which mutation. You didn't identify mutations till much further down the road. So we didn't know. And so our goal was to be aggressive with everybody with the hope that they may be the ones that would uh, go on and uh, live longer lives. So I don't think we changed our approach, but we weren't seeing the success that we are now. Gotcha. And for anyone who isn't familiar, if you don't know your mutation, it's critical because you can't go on a modulator or a medication unless you know if it'll work for that specific mutation. So that's why it's so important. And there's I think a couple thousand different CF mutations now, and we keep learning more. And part of this challenge and problem, as I recently learned in newborn screening, is why some people of color and some in the Hispanic population aren't getting diagnosed, even with newborn screening, because there aren't enough mutations listed in the newborn screening panels. It just takes all those mutations. Yeah. It just takes some of the most well-known. So we still have a long way to go. Yes. And while we cannot say enough wonderful things about modulators, because modulators treat specific mutations, the modulators that are currently on the market cover about 80% of all of our CF patients. But that means there's 20% it's a little less than 20% now, that are not covered by modulators. And so the CF Foundation really works tirelessly to try to find modulators or treatments for those patients who are currently not eligible for the approved modulators. Right. And it could be 80. I know we hear 90. I mean, we don't know exactly, right? Because, and there's a push for the last 10%. But It varies. We just don't know exactly how many people it is. But the important thing is there are people that need modulators that have not been reached. And like I always tell people, I have one daughter that's on the triple modulator. It works for her and it doesn't work for my other daughter. So even though there's modulators that could work for her, this one didn't. So in addition to that 10 or 20 percent that don't have something, there are also those that can't take the current modulator. So there's still a lot of work to be done. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that's part of looking into the future at things like gene therapy or gene editing, which are definitely being aggressively looked at right now in CF. What other differences do you see that, you know, a difference was made between when you started and kind of when you retired now? Um, well, certainly... Uh, From a very personal perspective, the team is very different. When I started, it was 
me and Dr. Gibbs, that was our team. And, you know, it was to my benefit at the time because I learned so much. But the team now has gotten a lot more, uh, there's a lot more disciplines. There's pharmacists, psychologists, geneticists. Of course, there's nurses, dietitians, respiratory therapists, social workers. We have an endocrinologist on our team, a gastroenterologist on our team. So that's been a spectacular thing to have all those disciplines, physical therapists. I don't want to forget that. Mm-hmm. So those are really, uh, that's important because we realize that CF is not just a lung disease. And we have these specialists that are available to us now getting specific CF training. So that's been really uh, beneficial. The other thing is, is uh, looking at it from an aging CF patient. So until the year 2000, I was the adult and the pediatric uh, program coordinator because we didn't have wow. adult centers. And so in the year 2000, our adult care center was developed and our center directors, Jim Murphy and the adult coordinators, Jill Fleege, they both are the same same staff as uh, when they started the center in 2000. And they are seeing all the typical, I guess, adult complications that adults without CF are seeing now because patients are living so much longer. So that's definitely a change. We know that we need to be screening for colon cancer and certainly um, diabetes and even heart disease. And now with modulators, you know, patients are actually getting overweight. And so now we're dealing with, we may be dealing with cholesterol problems. And so that's really changed a lot. And I have to say, oh, and then actually from a wonderful perspective, pregnancies are uh, out the roof. I mean, a lot of women with CF who may not have had much luck getting pregnant uh, started on modulators and now have a lot of luck getting pregnant. So our uh, care center, we have about 200 adult patients at our uh, care center and at any given time, there's, I say, between 10 and 15 pregnant women. So talk about a change. Uh, we did not see that at all in 1978. And that change, they could always get pregnant. It wasn't that they never could. Was it because there was low weight or what was? There was a lower amount of fertility in women with CF because of the viscous uh, mucus. And so that created problems in the cervix. And so they could get pregnant, but it it took a long time or could take a long time for them to get pregnant. And of course, for them, they have other considerations of way back then, looking at a shortened life expectancy and those kinds of issues, which are less of an issue now. Certainly all of those are still issues, but certainly less than they used to be. And what about for the men, you know, um, like when I was talking to Gunnar Esiason and he was talking about the fact that men with CF aren't sterile, they're infertile, it's the vast deference, that's the problem. Right. I'm wondering if when they're on modulators, if that is helping at all. I don't know. So the issue with men is that there is an absence of the vast deference. And so because that's an anatomical problem. I don't know that that would be um, improved with modulators, but I'm certainly not an expert at that. What I love is that those men that are on modulators will 
likely live a much higher quality and longer life to enjoy being a parent. And they can still do in vitro. Oh, definitely that. And um, Gunnar's very vocal about that. And we've had many of our men go that route with great success. That is wonderful. What things are you excited about that you've witnessed as, you know, history keeps being made when you were still in the field? What kind of celebration was there when the CF gene was found and Dr. Francis Collins and others? He's my personal hero. I might mention that, right? Yes, absolutely, right? (laughs) We can talk about him all day. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly 1989 was a hallmark year, and we were very excited. And I think that one of the things I've learned was to manage my expectations a little bit because I was disappointed that we didn't have gene therapy available to us sooner, but still excited. I mean, to being able to discover the CF gene, none of where we're at right now would have been possible without that. Um, Every time a new medication, whether it was an inhaled antibiotic or palmozyme, was an exciting thing for us. And it's, I have to say, it was probably, not probably, it was the most satisfying part of my job to be able to call a family and say, guess what? Palmozyme's on the market now. Let me tell you about this drug and let me try to, let's get this drug submitted and and we'll work on the prior authorizations. And these are the things that we're going to look for. And just, just to educate them on that, truly one of the most exciting parts of my job. And I might mention, perhaps one of the things I miss the most is not being kind of frontline and being able to deliver such hopeful news to our families. And it's not like, I still feel like I'm part of the CF community, but I'm not right there. But the person that's replacing me is absolutely awesome. So I'm so glad that she gets to experience that now. But uh, how many people in their career can deliver such exciting news? And I got to do it over and over and over again. And talk about sustaining you you know, and being grateful for for what you have. The CF community, I'm sure you know this, but the CF Foundation is looked at as a model by the rest of the health community in the world of how to deliver good care and how to do good research, basic science research and clinical trials. And it's because of that, that we are where we're at. And what we've discovered in the world of modulators and in genetic, uh, our understanding of genetics isn't just going to be beneficial to CF. It's beneficial to other diseases that are autosomal recessive diseases. And so I, I think that, you know, sometimes CF, you know, it's looked at as a, we call it an orphan disease because it doesn't affect that many people. But what we've accomplished in the CF community really has much more far-reaching benefits to all sorts of other people with genetic conditions uh, similar to CF, not to mention just the care team concept and how that can be utilized in other health disciplines or health conditions as well. Right. And we always talk about, yeah, the importance of the care team. And, And like you said, in other diseases and everything, not to mention COVID-19, right? Mm -hmm. We all understood what was going on. I was not concerned about the um, NIH and the FDA and the fast tracking. We knew about fast tracking. We helped 
get drugs fast-tracked. It was because of the efforts of the CF community that drugs were being fast-tracked. So we didn't have those same concerns as the general population that wasn't familiar with, with all of this. So, yeah, that was very interesting and still is. Yeah. Well, in COVID, when, now that you mention it, talk about the CF community being prepared for something like that. I truly think that's why most CF patients did very well during the pandemic, because what population could have been better prepared for um, infection control and the understanding of, you know, staying away from people who are ill and and just really understanding that importance. And, and you know, I, that's, I think, why people did so well. And from a CF community, from a care center perspective, I, I'm going to admit that I was skeptical about telehealth. Um, and it's not like I totally bought into telehealth because I think there are some situations where telehealth isn't the best situation. But I totally think that uh, there are many situations where telehealth is great. And it really got us through the pandemic. And of course, you probably know that the foundation provided spirometers to, to mm-hmm. patients. We And our center was certainly not uh, alone. We, we did drive-by sputum labs where they stayed in their car and we got sputum cultures uh, by going to them in the car. And there was just, it was just a very creative time. And that all came about um, as a necessity because of COVID. So God love our CF community for thinking outside the box. And I really think that both administrations, past and current, really missed the opportunity to use the CF community in the most wonderful way to say, we know masking. We know it stopped the spread of obesopatia. Here's why. Mm -hmm. For all the people that didn't understand or still don't believe it, we really had statistics and we have parents who've witnessed it and we know how, you know, distancing and everything has worked in the clinic. And I just think that's really too bad. We had so much to educate the public about. Yeah, I had not thought of that, but you're right. Uh, We have very vocal and articulate people in our community, and I think they could have been very persuasive. Um, And that you're right, that's a missed opportunity. Yeah. Well, what else are you excited about for the future, even though you're retired? What are you looking forward to maybe that you saw uh, toward the end of your career that you want to see keep going? Well, certainly, um, I mentioned gene therapy and gene editing. I think that's going to be really cool. It's a, it's those are both uh, therapies. They're very complicated, and I don't begin to understand, but they're uh, really being focused on by this the CF Foundation. Those really would be a cure for cystic fibrosis, and so I'm watching that with. Um, a lot of interest and hope that I understand it more as more research is being done in that field. What I hope to see, and I think it's going to happen, is I'm trying to decide how to articulate this best, but I guess a global expansion of CF care around the world. Because here in in the United States and in Canada too, we have great care and great 
access in the United States to all of the medications, most people do, um, that are available for CF. But that is not the case in the rest of the world. Many areas of the world um, really don't have organized care centers and don't have access to the same medications. So I hope that um, that is a priority of the CF Foundation in providing that same amount of care to the whole world. I think we've also recognized that CF is not just a Caucasian illness. There are many different races that are affected by CF. And so I think that's something that we need to be focusing our attention on. But really, just looking at what's available in our CF world right now, if a a newborn was diagnosed with CF and I had the privilege of going in and talking to that family about CF, what I could provide them now is real hope that their child is going to do well and live a long life and a healthy life and really I look forward to all the patients that are little kids right now and what they're going to have to look forward to. And I mean, our job at the care center is to just ensure that families know you take care of your your child and um, let us be partners with you and they're going to do well. Um, That isn't a guarantee for everybody, but uh, by and large, that's what what I think we're going to see. At least that's what I hope what we're going to see. And I, I have real positive thoughts about that. It's very exciting. And and I have to say, you know, when you were talking about world healthcare and everything being equal, there is so much disparity um, mm-hmm. and differences among care. It's maddening. And it's a hot button for me because it makes me crazy that my friends in Canada can't get the CF modulators that are available to us in England and in the United States and each province there has to get it approved. Yeah. They're all fighting for it. Like it depends where you live if one person can get it. And there's a whole discussion about, you know, access to care. In Egypt, the Ministry of Health still doesn't recognize cystic fibrosis officially. And in the Middle East, it's also very challenging and that you know, not every physician is aware that African-Americans, Asians, and Hispanics can have cystic fibrosis. That is mind-boggling to me that everyone isn't aware of that. So we have so much work to do still. We do. And as you mentioned earlier, the mutations for African-Americans and Hispanics and other some other races can be very different and are not necessarily on all the newborn screening panels. So they are patients that could be missed. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that in that respect. And I know that I think that Dr. I'm sure you're aware of, well, and in fact, Dr. Nasser, she's in your neck of the woods. I mm-hmm. awesome. And she's I know our hero as well. Yeah. Oh, she was my daughter's pediatrician. I thought that might be the case. Yeah pretty amazing person. And I know that she's involved in um, looking at care in Egypt and other countries in the Middle East. And, you know, God love her for that, because uh, I think that as excited as I am for what we have in in our country, um, it saddens me to think that I know these patients could do so much better you know, in other places of the world, and they don't have access to that care. It just seems 
so wrong to me. So I do think the foundation, I know they've started to look into this a little bit more. And um, Dr. Preston Campbell, he's going throughout the world now and uh, working on trying to improve that. So that would really be something that would be exciting and a loving thing for us to be able to provide better care everywhere. Mm-hmm. It should be. Absolutely. And and I wanted to ask you, too, the difference that you've seen in the gastrointestinal care, because we mentioned it briefly that it is such a big part of cystic fibrosis. From where I sit, it seems like there isn't much known and there aren't that many experts. And it's only in the last few years that um, even there was funding for research to help doctors address all of the stomach or GI issues. What have you seen since you started and kind of where it is now? Obviously, the nutritional status of our patients is much improved. And so just I want to start there by saying we, you know, it isn't that we don't see patients that are malnourished and that we don't have complex issues surrounding that. So the foundation does have a program now called Digest, which is a uh, training program for gastroenterologists who want to specifically go into the CF field. So I'm grateful for that, except that I think that it's still such a new field uh, because people, they just don't know a lot about it. Now, having said that, with the uh, modulators that are on the market, we are seeing patients who are doing much better with their weight. Not everybody, but um, many patients are, and in fact, getting overweight because of modulators. So now we're kind of having to dial back a little bit and determining, okay, well, maybe, maybe six pieces of bacon for breakfast isn't a good idea now that we have more effective medications that seem to improve their ability to digest their own enzymes. I think the GI component is they are looking at it a lot more closely now, but I don't, I think they're learning. It's not just a matter of training uh, new gastroenterologists because they're learning along the way. So I don't know what's going to happen in that regard. I'm thinking too of pain. I just, oh, because I know with my girls, they've had been doubled over in pain and they did a lot of trial and error themselves. They're both vegan now. And for whatever reason, that's helped them. So I just wonder, I think there still is a lot to learn and how different it can be for each patient. And sometimes the CF care team isn't as aware or in my experience, hasn't been and there isn't as much maybe connection. And I think it's improving a lot with the GI doctors who the GI doctors aren't experts in CF, but now they're starting to learn more together, I think. I think having a gastroenterologist as part of your team, and when I say as part of your team, what I mean is they are actually in the clinic while you're seeing CF patients, has made a huge difference in us understanding some of the nuances of GI symptoms in CF, and also the gastroenterologist understanding how other things play into um, GI symptoms. And so I think that is going to make a big difference in just kind of giving a more holistic treatment plan for GI symptoms. I have to say, the gastroenterologist that's in our clinic She has opened our eyes as far as looking 
past issues of just malabsorption and maybe DIOS or pancreatitis. I mean, she's looking at all sorts of other things, and we would not have looked into that. And that's the benefit of having a gastroenterologist as part of your team. And so I think that things will improve, but it's definitely a work in progress. There's a lot of research being done now on the GI microbiome. And so we have uh, one of uh, the doctors at our team is Dr. Ashley Deshaw is doing some clinical research on GI microbiome. And I think that's going to play into kind of customizing diets per individual patient that might uh, help. I agree. I agree. We were just talking about that. Um, I was just talking about it with another doctor here locally in Michigan, Dr. Ryan Thomas. It's very interesting. And I also wanted to get your take before we wrap up here on things like Bicepatia and other bacteria and deadly bacteria. Um, Are you seeing that it's staying the same or... What has changed since you started to your retirement as far as all of that bacteria? Um, in our area of the country, uh, the incidence of Bicepatia is extremely low. Uh, we have no Bicepatia in our pediatric population. I think our adult population has one or two patients. And those patients that have a positive Bicepatia identified in their in their sputum culture, we send those results to Dr. Lapuma's lab in, at the University of Michigan. And so he will identify it and he actually goes further and looks at genomavars. And so we have found that the patients that do have Bicepatia in our region have fortunately some of the um, genomavars that don't seem to cause the bad disease that some of the Bicepatia's can cause. So we're fortunate in that regard. What we've seen or what I've seen over the years uh, with other bacteria, particularly Pseudomonas and MRSA and staph in general, is a lessening of the incidence of it. And that's since infection control policies really uh, became much more stringent in the CF clinics and hospitals. But the, the other thing that we're seeing is that they're less resistant especially the Pseudomonas species, Pseudomonas aeruginosa species, tend to be less resistant. Back when I started, everybody had mucoid Pseudomonas, and it it didn't take long before it was multiply resistant and not effective. And then you're stuck. Um, And so that really was a, a frustrating situation. We don't see that very much anymore. Part of it probably has to do with modulators and people just having less infections and Part of it might be inhaled antibiotics, but all to say, if you look at the CF patient registry and the incidence of those bacteria, it's improving. And I think it's multifactorial. Like I said, I think it has to do with uh, infection control and perhaps modulators. And and certainly in the last two years, because of COVID and people staying home more, um, the incidence has gone down um, significantly more. Whether that continues uh, now that people are starting to get out a little bit more, I don't know. But I'm very grateful that we don't see the pan resistance that we used to see uh, as much. That is wonderful. And what do you want to leave on? What kind of message do you want to get to either parents or patients as you know, um, I know you're staying in touch with the CF community um, as you've retired, but 
kind of what is your hope for the future or what is your biggest thing that you're kind of celebrating as you've gone through this career? Well, getting closer to the cure. I mean, I think that um, it used to be we were afraid to use that word because because it, you know, as a, from a, because you're afraid to hope you're afraid to hope for that. Yeah. I'm not afraid to say it anymore. I believe that we will have a cure for cystic fibrosis and I hope it's in my lifetime. And I just believe that. And what a wonderful celebration that will be. I mean, I truly, I I feel like all of our families, certainly at our center, you know, they're great advocates for their kids. And I, I want them to continue to be advocates, to continue to challenge us with questions, um, keep us on our toes, because that's what helps move progress forward. And um, for us to be aggressive and think outside the box and until we get to a cure. And I feel like we have, I don't know how this happens, but I've noticed in the CF world and that we just attract brilliant researchers. And I am so happy for that opportunity that these researchers, not only are they brilliant, but they are collaborative. And that collaboration will move all of this cycle of success in finding a cure for CF much faster. And so I just feel um, very lucky to be part of the CF community because I think you know, I just fell into this job 44 years ago, but what a lucky thing that was for me to see what we have. And I believe there will be a cure in, in my lifetime and that will be a real reason to celebrate. It certainly will. And I absolutely hope that, that you are correct and that there is a cure in, in our lifetimes. And I think that the CF community and your patients in Nebraska were very lucky to have you on their team. And I, I, I'm so honored. I think there are so many gems like you out there that we don't know about. And I'm so grateful that we could tell a small part of your story. I'm sure when your patients and families listen to this podcast, they'll probably all want to say, I have this great story about (laughs) Dean and all she did for us. And we definitely want to hear about them. We'll put it on our website too. But um, just thank you for... Oh, thank you. It's such a huge commitment. When you're part of the CF community, your job isn't nine to five. You're constantly in touch with us. So thank you. Oh, it's been an honor to be in this uh, community and an honor to be on this podcast. I, I've never been on a podcast. I've never been featured in a podcast. So I was very excited about it. And my, my two girls are like, you're doing a podcast. I, I, <laughs> I said, I know, but it's just been a pleasure. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Laura. The original music in this podcast is performed by Kevin Allen. It's not complicated. Who happens to have cystic fibrosis. We all got our worries and fears. I know what's got you frustrated. But loving you is so all right. This has been the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast. For more information and to learn more about the Bonnell Foundation, visit our website at thebonnellfoundation.org. That's the B-O-N-N-E-L-L foundation.org. This podcast was sponsored by Vertex Pharmaceutical, the science of possibility, and Beatrice. It was produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts. Follow our show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.